Well, good morning. What a great morning to be here today together. These are exciting times for Waukee Community Church. And so if you uh, have missed out somehow, uh, we have a great new vision in front of us. And if you, uh, these should be a tucked in your bulletin, but if not, there's some in the back, I'm sure, and you can grab these uh, and, and see just what awesome things God is doing. And as we've been praying every day at four o'clock for four minutes for, the, for uh, 40 days in this campaign, as we're thinking about it, as we're preparing to say, God, you have to move heaven and earth to make this happen, but it seems that you're opening doors for us to, to move into a facility, to move into a ministry partnership with Valley Church, uh, to a, a ministry relationship with them, and, uh, and we're just very, very excited about all the things that God is doing. So as we prepare, um, we have a, a, uh, a stewardship initiative team that is meeting as we begin to think about raising money for this facility, and, uh, and we'll just keep those things in your prayers as God is, is clearly moving and doing great things. And so, uh, also, I loved having breakfast here today. Uh, I don't even like eggs, but I still enjoyed the breakfast time. Uh, it, it was great to uh, see all of you hanging out and, uh, and just an opportunity to get to know people that maybe you don't know at Waukee Community Church. And so I'm grateful for that time. Do it every, every Sunday for the next two months uh, as we uh, process through this. All right, you need to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 16. We are working through the series uh, in the life of Abraham. So we started in Genesis 12. Aaron Savage launched us in this message uh, here about a month ago. And, and we launched into Genesis chapter 12 and looked uh, and see, saw God's faithful promise to Abraham. And today we're continuing in this series and asking about God's promise. It's a journey with the promise of God. When I was in seventh grade, that was a few years ago, uh, I, I played Little League Baseball. You guys know that I love baseball. I try to work the Cubs into every sermon somewhere, but I love baseball. I played Little League Baseball, and uh, on my Little League Baseball team that year, I was the shortstop. Uh, and so th th that was always a, a fun position because I played shortstop a little bit like uh, Sean Dunstan. Any Cubs fans here remember that a great athlete when he let the ball go, you never knew, really knew where it was going to land. And so uh, I, I kind of played shortstop like that. So seventh grade, we had had a pretty good year. It was the last game of the season. If we won the game, we got to go to the playoffs. If we lost, we went home. And so we were up. It was the final inning. Uh, we were up by one run. There are runners at second and third with two outs. The batter is at the plate. If we get the out, the game's over and we go to the playoffs. If he gets a hit, the run scores, and either we go into extra innings or we lose. And so I remember sitting there at shortstop in the field, runners on second and third, and I prayed this simple prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, please don't let him hit it to me. <laughs> that, that was a, just my simple prayer. Like, it sounded like this, oh God, please, not to me, anywhere but me. And of course... The next bat, the, ne the next pitch gets hit right to me. And uh, I scooped it up, I pivoted, I prepared to throw to first, I fired, I let the ball go, and as I watched it go to first base, at first I thought, hey, that's looking pretty good. Like it's on the way, you know, the first baseman's in position. And then I sort of watched the first baseman stretch his glove up in the air as the ball seemed to creep higher and higher and higher. And I watched him leap in the air and the ball sailed over his head, over the fence. The two runs scored and we lost the game. 
And it was all on me. Like, I, I know I felt like I had messed this up for my entire team, that all, I had screwed it all up, and I had messed up our future as a team. If every one of us would look at the history of our lives, if you think back in your life, every one of us have had a moment like that, where we've just messed it up. We've just totally messed it up. We messed up the, I messed up the promise of the playoffs, but we start to wonder, and I have a simple question for you today. Is it possible for you and I to mess up the promise of God? Is it possible for you and I to mess up the promise of God? Because honestly, sometimes I feel like that's true. Sometimes I answer that question affirmatively. I feel like, man, I just messed up this whole promise. Is it possible for you and I to mess up the promise of God? So we're in this series on Abraham, Genesis, uh, Abraham series, and we're talking about this journey with the promise of God. And way back in Genesis 12, we looked at the covenant that God made with Abraham, the promise. And that promise had four basic elements, and, and uh, you can see them up here on the screen, the four basic elements of the promise. The four basic elements, Jordan, put those up there. <laughs> that, that was your cue. There you go. God's covenant to Abraham. The four basic elements are this. God promised him a great nation. He said, you're going to be in a great nation with descendants that number like the stars in the heaven. Then he said, your name is going to be great. I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. And then the third promise was, you would be a great blessing, Abraham, not just to your people, but to the entire world. And then lastly, God promised Abraham a great land. He, in fact, in Genesis, he marks out this territory, and he says, from this river to this river, from this sea to this sea, this is going to be your land. And one day, your descendants will own this land. So Abraham, after he gets his promise in Genesis 12, goes down to Egypt, and then he ends up going back to Canaan. He ends up in a war with kings of the land. And then last week, we talked about how Abraham suffered kind of a dark night of the soul when he simultaneously experienced faith and darkness at the same time. And then today, 10 years have gone by from what we talked about last week. There's been a 10-year pause, and we're introduced to some great obstacles to the great nation portion of this promise of God. And so today, as we look at this, what we're going to see in Genesis 16 is there's three obstacles that, that come up for Abraham and for this great promise of God. The first obstacle is simply this. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, but Abraham has no kids, no heir. And then the second obstacle we're going to see is there's an introduction of the wrong heir or a, comp- a competing heir to the promise. And then the last one is even this makeshift heir is in danger of being lost. And so we have these obstacles as we see Abraham try to push forward on his journey with the promise of God. And so today as we ask, can we mess up the promise of God? I want to introduce you to four people. I want to introduce you to four people here in in Genesis chapter 16 that each help us ask a clarifying question as we seek to answer, can we mess up the promise of God? And the first person we meet in Genesis chapter 16 is Abraham. And in Abraham, we ask the question, can we mess up the promise of God by making the wrong decision? Can you and I make a a wrong decision and mess up the promise of God? 
As we look at Abraham in this text, we're going to ask this question. Now, we saw the first obstacle that I talked about was no heir. A- A- Abraham has no kids. And so the, this, uh, the story continues. It's been 10 years. And so we look in the text and we read this uh, in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build my family through her. So Sarai gives her maidservant to Abraham. Now you have to understand here a little bit that this is a reasonable thing to do in ancient Near Eastern culture. Today that seems a little weird for us if, uh, for that to happen. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a very common practice. There was, in fact, in ancient Hammurabi codes uh, that we see as we read about ancient Near Eastern culture, this is a common practice. In fact, there, there were written laws to deal with this kind of situation. So Abra- uh, Sarah suggests to Abraham, hey, take my maidservant, my, you know, she's my best maidservant, and she, and take her, and go sleep with her, and we'll have our heir through her. So we read in verse, uh, the second half of verse 2 there, Abram agrees to what Sarai said. Now Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, so Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Okay, now wait a second here. Abraham agrees to this, right? So you and I are sitting here going, Abraham, come on. Like, really? You know, he's like, hey, I don't mind having another woman around, right? This is all right with me. But we got to cut Abraham a little slack here before we're too hard on him for this decision. Because it had been 10 years. And God's promise to Abraham was not yet specific to Sarah. Back in chapter 15, I think I got this verse up here. When God promised Abraham an heir, he said this. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Abraham was talking about, hey, you know, I don't have any kids and a servant of mine is going to inherit all my stuff. And he said, this servant, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. But notice, there's a promise that this son would be Abraham's son, but not Sarah. She's not in there. You see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, they had no idea of genetics. They had no comprehension of fertilization. The woman was simply viewed in the ancient Near Eastern culture as an incubator almost. And one woman was as good as another for this task. And this was a common practice across the known world to provide an heir for a barren woman. So Abraham, you can think through what he's thinking. He's thinking, okay, God promised that I would have uh, uh, an heir that came from my own body, but it's not working out 10 years with Sarah, and she's old. So hmm, maybe God's plan is different. Maybe God's plan is just to another woman. And so he thinks, well, let's do it. Now, we always have to put the text in context. We always have to do this. Remember, um, this passage was handed down by oral tradition until we got to the time of Moses. Moses wrote this down for the Israelites as, the two, as one to two million of them are coming up out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, getting ready to go home and take the promised land. And Moses is writing down their history for them. When the average Israelite would read this, they already know the end of the story. They already know that Sarah would give birth to Isaac, and out of Isaac would come a great nation. 
They know it, and Moses knows it, but Abraham has no earthly idea. To Abraham, he's made the right decision. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we realize that this was completely the wrong decision. But Abraham didn't know this. It appears that Abraham has just messed up the promise of God for us who know what's supposed to happen. And it begs the question, did he make a wrong decision? Can you and I make a wrong decision? Can we mess up God's plan? I mean, we always love to talk as Christians, we like to talk about doors. God's opening a door and closing a door. But sometimes it's really hard to know whether he's opening a door or you're just pounding on it trying to force it open. Isn't it hard to figure that out? Sometimes we have an opportunity to take a new job and we say, am I supposed to take this job or am I not supposed to take this job? What if I do the wrong thing? You know, maybe a friend comes to you and says, "Uh, you know, I really need to borrow some money. Could you loan me some money? Well, maybe you should. But maybe you shouldn't. Like, and as you process, what if I make the wrong decision? You know, if you're single, you ask, should I date a person or should I not? Uh, should I buy a house or not? Did I, did I marry the wrong person or not? Uh, you know, do I have regret? Maybe as a parent you think, I messed up my children. Oh, I have regret because I think I chose the wrong decision in how I raised my kids. Or maybe as a child you think, oh man, I mistreated my parents. And you have such regret for making a wrong decision. So if a door is open, should you walk through it? And if a door doesn't open, should we do nothing? I mean, we've had plenty of things like that in front of us where there doesn't appear to be a door open, so we'll just do nothing. But what if doing nothing is making the wrong decision? Should we just back and sit back and do nothing? And this is where Abraham has been for 10 years. 10 years He's been sitting there saying, well, I got the promise of God in front of me, and I've really been doing nothing. Is it time to make something happen? And he doesn't know. Can he mess up the promise of God? Can your decision or my decision or your indecision or my indecision, can we mess up the promise of God? Can we make the wrong decision? That's the question. And of course, the answer is not simple. It's yes and no. Yes, you can make the wrong decision. You can make bad decisions. You and I see this all the time. It's why we talk about the whole counsel of God's word, referencing that. It's why we talk about the importance of being in community with people who love God and listening to his spirit because we can make the wrong decision. We see people around us do it all the time. We can totally make the wrong decision. But we can't mess up the promise of God. We can make the wrong decision, but here's the beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God's hand working and moving. And the sovereignty of God's hand tells us that we can't mess up his promise. We can make the wrong decision, but God's sovereign hand weaves our mistakes into his kingdom plan because God always keeps his promise. And we're going to see that in Abraham. Time and time again, Abraham seems to mess up the promise of God. God weaves his mistake into something beautiful. And this is part of what it means to learn to walk on a journey with the promise of God. He takes wrong decision and indecision and uses them for his glory. So the first person we want to talk about in this passage is Abraham, and we simply ask the question, can we make the wrong decision? The second person that I want to introduce you to is Sarah. Sarah, and through her we ask the question, can our sin derail his promise? 
I mean, what, what, what about outright sin? Can we derail God's promise to us through just simple, blatant disobedience and sin? Can we mess up God's promise? Well, the second obstacle that the promise of God here is introduced is a competing heir. Look at verse 4. So uh, Abraham slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So what's happening here? Well, uh, Abraham and Sarah are about to make some pretty serious mistakes. And they're pretty well ready to commit some pretty blatant cultural and biblical sins here. First of all, um, you need to understand back in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, while Abraham took Hagar for a, a wife, because she was a slave in the cultural order of society, she had a very clear role. She was the child bearer, not equal to her mistress, Sarah. That was her role And she was expected to stay in that. But what started to happen is Abraham, as an 86-year-old man who had never had a child, all of a sudden this woman is bearing his child. And can you imagine the excitement that Abraham had over that? Over his first child at 86 years old? And all of a sudden he's doting over Hagar because Hagar is, is pregnant with his child. And he's elevating her in a status that he shouldn't be. And he's ignoring his wife. And all of a sudden, Hagar comes to the place where she feels like, you know, I am pretty important. I I am pretty awesome. I am bearing the promised child. And all of a sudden, she starts to despise her mistress. And she puts Sarah out of her place. And she makes Sarah miserable. And Abraham should have never allowed this culturally. He should not have ever allowed this. He put disgrace upon Sarah. So watch what happens in verse 5. Sarah confronts him about it. And Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. She calls Abram on the carpet, and Abram knows it. He knows she's right. But he doesn't make the right decision. Instead of protecting Hagar... He says, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do whatever you think is best. So what does Sarah do? She flips the tables. Ha ha, I've got the power back. I'm going to make that woman suffer. And she turns the tables and she starts despising and making Hagar's life miserable. And she clearly doesn't do the right thing here. When Abraham pulls back his protection of Hagar, Sarah starts mistreating him. Do you see there's just sin all over the place here? This whole thing is just filled with sin of despising and not loving people that were in a way that reflects the heart of God. She's going to mistreat, so she's going to put Hagar in her place. So look what Hagar does. After being in a place that's just completely and utterly miserable, Sarah mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. Hagar says, enough, I can't bear this anymore. And she goes out in the wilderness. Now you need to understand, an Egyptian woman in a foreign land, in the wilderness alone, is a really scary thing. In all likelihood, although we don't know this, Hagar has gone out there to die. 
She has probably said, I'm going to go back to Egypt, to my homeland, and, but I'm most likely I'm going to die on the way. I'm either going to get raped or murdered or beat up on the way on the road back to Egypt, but that's better than enduring what I'm enduring, enduring now. That's how miserable Sarah treated her. And now this baby is at risk. And even though Ishmael isn't pro- the promised child, no one knows this. Sarah's sin has seemingly put the promise of God in danger. And her sin has seemingly messed up the promise of God. I want to ask you today, can your sin mess up the promise of God? Can my sin mess up the promise of God? Because it seems that Sarah's sin here has totally messed up, by all accounts, the promise of God. Can you and I mess up God's promise? As I tell you all the time, um, in, in America, Christians are practical Buddhists. We don't really recognize it and identify it, but many of us are practical Buddhists because we think, if I do something bad, God is going to smite me. If I do something good, God is going to reward me. That's all that is is karma, which is a patently unbiblical idea. All that is is karma, and karma says if you do something good, something good will happen to you. If you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. And that is what we expect out of God. But the gospel knows none of this. The gospel throws karma out the window. Because if karma were true, you and I are evil enough that we deserve immediate death. But in Jesus, he makes us something new. Friends, if your sin is punished the way it deserves, you deserve death. But here's what's great about the gospel. The God of the universe looked at you and me and he said, yes, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. But I love you enough so that when you sin and all the punishment that you deserve, I took, God says. I became one of you. So when Jesus hung on the cross and he spread out his arms, and at that moment when all the darkness and sin of the world came upon him, God said, I love you enough. You're valuable enough to me to not give you what you deserve, but to take it. That's how much he loves you. And this is what's so incredible about being children of God, loved children of God. Satan loves to whisper lies to us. He loves to whisper things like, you're not good enough. Like your job isn't going well because you secretly sinned somewhere and I'm going to smite you. Satan loves to whisper that lie to us. We feel like, oh, our family dynamics are bad and it's probably because of my own sin. That's just a lie from Satan. Satan says, oh, you're stressed out. Ha, ha, ha. You should be stressed because you're a sinner. And we cry out. Sometimes we just look at our life and we feel like everything is coming down on us and we think, God, I must have screwed this up so bad to deserve this. And then we look at that and we think to ourselves, God, because sometimes we can't figure out what we did wrong and we think, God, I'm so miserable right now. What did I do to deserve this? And all that is is practical karma coming out in us. The reality is everything we deserve was put on Jesus. So, does our sin derail the promise of God? Now, certainly there are consequences of our sin. Those things happen. Those are just natural laws of the way the world works. But the truth of the matter is, God's promise stands in spite of our sin. 
This is the joy of the gospel. No sin of yours can thwart the promise of God. He is a God of promise that will keep his word. And we're going to see this in the third person we look at, Hagar. We looked at Abraham, we looked at Sarah, and now we look at Hagar. And we, in Hagar we ask, has God abandoned me? So now the third obstacle, of course, is that the, the, this heir is in danger. Sometimes, as we find Hagar out in the wilderness all alone, sometimes uh, we can relate to that. Because Hagar sat in the wilderness by herself on the road to Egypt, thinking she's going to die. And when everything is going badly, sometimes we think, like Hagar did, that maybe God is done with me. Maybe God has abandoned me. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt or just wondered, has God abandoned me? Is he done with me? I've thought that. Maybe you have as well. This is not the only time that Hagar gets driven off into the wilderness. It happens again in Genesis chapter 21. And now, after that, later after the boy is born, she gets driven off again. Hagar's sitting here pregnant out in the wilderness, and she must be thinking, God, what did I do? I didn't, do, I didn't ask to be in this situation. No one asked me my opinion. I'm just here bearing this child, hated by this woman, out in the wilderness, and I'm going to die. Nobody asked me. And what I love here is that God meets her. Out in the middle of nowhere where she's at her lowest place, the angel of the Lord, which most theologians think whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that represents the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's Jesus before he came and took the form of a man and became one of us that way. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And Jesus comes to her. His promise is that she's not alone. And she's not abandoned. In spite of what she feels, God has not abandoned her. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of Genesis 16. The, the angel of the Lord gives her this promise. And in verse 13, she then responds... The angel of the Lord promises her some things. He says that you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him Ishmael, and the Lord has heard your misery. This is in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he talks a little bit about what Ishmael's character is going to be like, like a wild donkey, which is a funny thing for another time. That's uh, Moses putting some humor in here. Anyway, but in verse 13, she gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. See, she didn't know who this God was. So she gave him a name. She said, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And then in verse 14, later, she says this. That is why this well is called Bir Lahai Ro'oi. And it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. All right, so you need to understand some things here about this text to really grasp this idea. The first thing she says is, I'm going to name God the God who sees me. Why? Well, she needs a name, and there are tons of emotions here, and she's felt abandoned, but for the first time, she says, God met me, and I wasn't invisible to him. He sees me, and he cares about me. So she names this place, Bir Laha Ro'oi, which means well of the living one who sees me. You see, Hagar up to this point had felt completely overlooked by God and abandoned by God. But the true God shows up and says, 
I see you, Hagar. I see you. Even the name Ishmael means God hears. That's what the name literally means. For the Lord has heard your misery. She feels alone, but she now knows she is not. If you have ever felt alone, if you have ever felt overlooked, you can ask the same questions that Hagar asks. Some of you today feel like Hagar. She didn't ask to be put in this position. She just served her master well, and maybe you feel like that. God, I'm just here trying to serve you well. And you say, God, I've been faithful, but it's not working out. But God sees you. I mean, again, this is the beautiful message of the gospel, that the God of the universe would care enough about you to become one of us and die, not just for the whole world, but specifically for you. You are not alone. Jesus promised this. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He came, he promised us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is here in this very room today. If you are a believer in Jesus and a follower of him, he is with you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And even in your darkest moment, God loves you and he is with you. Maybe today you feel like you're one of those invisible people to God, but you are not. Maybe you feel God is far away, but he is not. He is near. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 34, 18. You should memorize this verse if you don't have it. Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And like Hagar, God wants you to know that he hasn't abandoned you. God is blessing the whole world through Abraham, and even Ishmael becomes a great nation. So, we ask, can you mess up the promise of God? And can God abandon you? And the answer is no. We've been introduced to Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, but there's one more key player in this text that you may not realize, and it's not obvious, but he's all over it, and that's God himself. Because in asking, can we mess up the promise of God, we have to see that we can't because his promise is a journey. We cannot mess up the promise of God because his promise is a journey. Look at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael. So the son she had, to the son she had born, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. God's fulfillment of his plan rarely goes as you and I plan. And while Ishmael is not the promised son, but a son, he is a son under the blessing of God's promise. And so while the fulfillment of God rarely, of these promises of God rarely go as we plan, yet God's promise stands and remains. Sometimes we choose the wrong thing. Sometimes sin is a seeming detour to the promise of God, but God has never abandoned us. And God is always the God of promise. You see, 10 years have passed since the pro first promise of God to Abraham. And another 13 years would pass after Ishmael is born. In chapter 17, uh, this is so crazy if you think about it. 13 years have passed from the promise of the birth, uh, 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 from the birth of Ishmael, rather. 13 years passed till the birth of Isaac, the promised child of Abraham to Abraham and Sarah. But if you look at the text, Abraham doesn't know this. By all accounts, in chapter 17, we learn 
Abraham thinks that Ishmael is the promised son. By all accounts, Abraham thinks this. Wait a minute. What about the last 13 years? Look at chapter 17, verse 15 and 16. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and I will surely give a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. King of peoples will come from her. Abraham face down, fell face down, and he laughed. <laughs> and he said to himself, Will a son be a man, born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham says, Just let it be Ishmael. For 13 years I've been raising this boy. He's a good boy. Just let, You're never really going to give me a child at 100. This can't happen. Just Abraham has spent his entire 13 years thinking that Ishmael is the promised one. And all of a sudden, God says, no, Ishmael is not the promised one. He's not the promised one. Another one is coming. So, for 13 years and 10 years before that, has Abraham wasted his time? Has Abraham wasted his time 13 years or, I mean, you can look at it, 23 years? John Walton, one of my professors years ago uh, in college, who's a great Old Testament scholar, in wrestling with that simple question, did Abraham mess up the plan of God and waste 13 years of his life? He says this. He says, the answer to that question is a resounding no. No, he did not waste his time. Even though sometimes what we see as solutions turn out only to be more obstacles for God to deal with, that does not mean that God disapproves of the paths we seek out or that we should start feeling regrets for wasted time. And listen to what he says. This is so good. With God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. Can we mess up the promise of God? No. Because even in our sin and even in our wrong choices, even in those, God says, I will turn those into training grounds for your good and my glory. I love the um, illustration of a mosaic. I talk about it all the time because I believe a mosaic is the best description of what of our, our lives look like to God. If you don't know what a mosaic is, a mosaic is an art piece of art. that is usually built out of shards of glass or shards of pottery. And those shards are taken and they're formed and shaped into a beautiful work of art. But for a mosaic to work, the pot has to be broken. The glass has to be broken. And isn't that what God does with our lives? He takes our mistakes and our mess-ups and our sins. And he says, he doesn't say, oh, you've derailed my promise. It's all over. No, he takes those and he weaves them for our good and his glory. He's done this at Waukee Community Church time and time and time again when we think and we look back over 10 years and you go, oh man, we really wasted a couple years there or oh man, why did we delay or oh man, why would it have taken us so long to get to this point or oh, this person sinned against us and set us back. We think things like that all the time but that is not what's happening. What's happening is that the God of promise has taken all this stuff and turning it into a mosaic for our good and his glory and his promise still remains. A couple weeks ago, I had coffee with uh, 
a guy, um, and he's a, a former uh, young man who served in the military. And as he was, we were talking about his time in the military, he, he said something really interesting to me. He said, uh, you know, my first year in basic training was horrible. He said, I'd never felt more alone. At that time, I was trying to live out my faith, and it was in an environment where it wasn't really conducive to followers of Jesus. And uh, I was left alone. People shied away from me because I didn't go get hammered every weekend. I ended up being the designated driver all the time, and I, and I just sat there lonely. And he said, it was horrible. And after that first year in basic training, he said, I wondered, had I made a huge mistake? Had I done the wrong thing because I am completely and utterly miserable and alone. But he said, then the second year came. And at the second year, the new recruits came and they were training together. And at the second year, what he found out is all of these guys that had shunned him and made him feel lonely, they had a respect for him. So when the new recruits had questions or problems, you know where they sent him? They sent him to this young man. He's got something together that we don't have. And all of a sudden, in his second year, he began to see how the promise of God was coming true in his life and how God had put him here and used all that experience in the first year to pour into the lives of young men in his second year and ongoing. And I thought, that is such a great picture because we so often ask the question, did I screw up this promise? And God says, no, resounding no, you have not and you cannot, because my promise still stands. His promise stands through the journey. With God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. I'm going to pray and close us, and then Pastor Jeff is going to come and introduce us and take us into a time of communion where we uh, uh, take in the Lord's table together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you're bigger than our mistakes and you're bigger than our sins. And even when we feel abandoned and alone, your promise still stands. And we love you and we take such encouragement from that today. We love because you first loved us. Thank you how you weave these truths together in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.